evidence and answers. Many say at the dinner table that there are two things we shouldn't discuss, religion and politics. But the title of a new book asks the question, how would Jesus vote? Hmm, sounds intriguing, doesn't it? What does the author have to say about this topic? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, we will hear Pat interviewing guest author, Daryl Bach, discussing his book, How Would Jesus Vote? If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Pat with part one of this interview with Daryl Bach. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of our time. Well, two things Dad told you not to bring up in a discussion. That's politics and religion. But today we're going to talk about both. With the political situation more controversial than ever, how should Christians approach politics? Does the Bible have anything to say about government and political policy? What are the principles that should guide us? Ever wondered how Jesus would vote? Well, here to help us wrestle with this issue of faith and politics is Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Bach received his Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and a PhD from the University of Aberdeen. He is the author of over 30 books, including some outstanding commentaries on Luke and Acts and studies of the historical Jesus. He is the director of the Center of Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is a consulting editor for Christianity Today, and his articles appear in leading publications. And he is often an expert consulted by the media on New Testament issues. He has been a New York Times bestselling author in nonfiction. And he's written a new book, which we want to talk about today, How Would Jesus Vote? So, Dr. Bach, welcome to Evidence and Answers. It's my pleasure. Yes, we enjoy having you all the time. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Center for Cultural Engagement there at Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, its formal name is the Howard G. Hendricks Center for Christian Leadership and Cultural Engagement. That's the long name. We simply call it the Hendricks Center. And I have responsibility for developing a weekly podcast that discusses issues of God and culture called The Table. You can access that at dts.edu slash the table. And we have all around 140 hours worth of material that we've produced over the last three years that touch on a wide array of issues of which one is obviously the intersection between faith and society at large, thus politics. Yes, it's outstanding podcast there that you can go to outstanding discussions from theology to Bible to archaeology to a whole host of issues. Well, Dr. Bach, how should a Christian approach the political arena? I mean, there are some, unfortunately, from the premillennial position saying, you know, the world is just going to get worse. And so they just stay out of politics. Many don't even vote. There are others who go the other way to see that government is the answer and it's the duty of the Christian to Christianize the government. Well, how should a Christian approach this political arena? Well, that's 0 for 2. 
I think a, a Christian has a responsibility in the society to reflect uh, their, on their values and vote accordingly and to be a good citizen, just to be a participant in what's going on. That impacts the nature and character of the society that they live in. It's a way of caring for and loving their neighbor. It's a way of expressing at least the hope or the direction of uh, providing means for some type of societal human flourishing, even though that world is not perfect and we know it'll be imperfect until Christ comes back. So we're in a situation where you engage, but you don't put too much stock in the results on the one hand, but withdrawing is not really a good option either, unless there's really a good reason for not engaging with a choice that lies in front of you, which in the case of this particular election might actually be an option a person does decide to think through and exercise. Now, you know, Dr. Bach, when the New Testament was written, it was in the context, I think they were under imperial rule. That's right. We're in a you know a democratic country here. What is the duty of the Christian citizen in a democracy, according to what you see the Bible teaching? Well, I think they're to participate in the society as a good citizen, and you know we have the rights of related to advocacy in the public square that comes with that territory. We are to make a case for why living in a certain way is beneficial, not just to Christians but to people as a whole. And so all of that, I think, is a part of being a responsibly engaged citizen. Some people are obviously more engaged than others because of their vocation, but, but it still is a useful and uh, an appropriate way to live out your Christian convictions in the world. Now, you know, Jesus stated uh, when he was asked about paying taxes, he said, render to Caesars what is Caesars and to God what is God's there. Uh, was he making a distinction between the church's role and government that the church is not to be a, you know, involved heavily in uh, government? I wouldn't say that. What he was saying was is that there were people who wanted to actually opt out of or rebel against government, and he actually his response ruled out both of those options. Uh, on the one hand, they were supposed to pay their taxes. And in doing so, they were participating in the social system that was there. And as a result, obviously, by paying their taxes, they weren't rebelling against the government. So what we see is Jesus stating a kind of engagement in the midst of the world, uh, even though there's a distinction between what the church is involved with and what the kingdom is and government. When we tie those two too closely together, that actually produces another problem. I tell people that if you want to put politics in kind of the right slot, think of it this way, that good laws with bad hearts still yields chaos. If you read the Old Testament, that's the story of the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. And that's why we got a new covenant, because the new covenant talks about changed hearts. And in the end, if you want real change, real change comes from changing people's hearts, not from changing laws. Now, Daryl, you state in your book, not only are, are there issues with the political leaders, but Christians also need to share in the responsibility for the situation we find ourselves in. How is that? 
Well, I mean, we are responsible for the people that we vote for and the character of their policies, you know, and to the extent that we exercise political power and we choose leaders who have a mix that we're not happy with, you know, we're partially responsible for that. Obviously, we're not totally responsible for that because we're not the total electorate. But I think the case can be made that what we're seeing today is a mixture of positions that really don't reflect very well what Scripture challenges Christians to be. So I can go through either party, and I can see positions that obviously don't align with where Scripture is, and I can see positions that are at least somewhat concerned with where Scripture aligns. The premise of the book was that We live in a fallen world, and that means that we oftentimes face tensions in the ethical choices that political issues put before us. And what tends to happen is is that the right and the left pick one side of the tension or the other. They cherry pick. Rather than actually wrestling with the question, how do we balance these two sets of values that are in tension with each other, what's the best mix in dealing with that? And so we never really have the political discussion that most of these issues deserve. Another point that I make, I didn't make it explicitly in the book, but in talking about the book I've made it, and that is there really are three kinds of issues. The issues where these tensions exist, and that's the conversation we need to have. The issue where there's really agreement about what needs to happen, but we just don't have a clue how to get there. That's racial reconciliation tends to fit in that category. And then a handful of issues, a much smaller sample, in which there really is such a deep worldview conflict that there's no way to think about what a compromise position would be, or at least it's very hard to think about how you get there. And so, but the bulk of the issues that I discuss in the book are in the first category and not in either of the latter two categories, which means there's a lot up for discussion and a different kind of discussion than we tend to have. Yeah, I see. Now, Daryl, you state that America was built on two principles. America is not a, quote, Christian nation, but it was built on many biblical principles. And you state there are two principles there, reason and humble faith. Tell us about those two pillars there. Well, uh, what I'm saying is, is that the United States is this odd alignment of uh, values coming from really two different places. One was the values associated with the Enlightenment. That's where the reason part comes from. That's not a religious value per se. It's much more aligned to to Enlightenment values, which sometimes press against religion. But on the other hand, there was this Judeo-Christian base that even Unitarians could sign on to in terms of its ethics and the way society should be organized, its belief about the sinfulness and corruption of man, those kinds of things. I mean, someone like a Thomas Jefferson, if it's in that category, would sign on at least to that level. And that provided two wings by which the American eagle could fly. And the argument that I'm making in the first part of the book is, is that when we take religious discourse out of our political reasoning and we withdraw from a real meaningful discussion of values. It's like cutting one wing off a bird, and you're not going to be able to fly. And so uh, that's the picture that we put forward early on in the book. Now, you know, a lot of what we learn today in the educational system is really that the term separation of church and state 
and that religion really should stay out of the political arena. Is that what the Founding Fathers intended? No, I don't think so, at least not in the way that it's normally presented. The idea is is that everyone is free in terms of their conscience to have the kind of religious faith they choose to have, everything from atheism all the way over to, you know, to orthodox or even fundamentalist Christianity or fundamentalist any religion. I mean, a person's religiously free with regard to the choices that they make. But the fathers were very clear in affirming that the value of religious reflection and giving a moral stability to society was pretty important. In fact, George Washington called it a pillar that if it were removed would would lead to the destabilization of society. So, And his position was not unusual. If you read the earliest fathers of the nation, uh, this is something that's consistently said in one way or another. In fact, if you took the idea of God out of the table, you'd have to pull, you'd have to pull back on the Declaration of Independence, because the Declaration of Independence was, a, was an attempt at a theological justification for why a nation has a right, why a people have a right to rebel against the nation to which it belongs. And, uh, and there was an appeal to the, to the Creator. There was an appeal to inalienable rights that were rooted in a belief that people had certain intrinsic entitlements that count, come with being human being made by God. So even though there isn't a particular denomination or particular religion that's endorsed by the state, the idea that we should think about our relationship to to transcendent realities and transcendent truths was very much a part of the early part of our history. Studies have been done. I think Heinemann and Lutz was one of the most famous where they studied 15,000 documents of the founding fathers and found 30% of the quotes coming either directly or you know, indirectly referring to bib- to the Bible or biblical principles. So the Bible had a tremendous influence in the guiding and shaping of our government, didn't it? Yeah, and it's at the root of much of the history of Western culture, the way I describe it. And this is one of the things that's changed really almost in, in our lifetime since the middle part of the last century, is that there was a Judeo-Christian net around most of the West. If you went to school, you were taught biblical values, whether you were uh, a devout Christian or not, because the Bible and the values that it presented, at least at a moral level, were seen as being a reflection, at the least, of some kind of wisdom that's worth reflecting on and applying. Now, we've lost that in our culture today. That net no longer really exists. I mean, there are people who plead for it and who argue for it, but in terms of being a real cultural factor or force, that role, that net, its presence is diminished if it's not gone entirely because of an ex- what I would regard as an excessive secularization that has come into our culture. But, uh, but that's a reality that we deal with. And for the church, this is a particular challenge because now how we communicate has to change to a certain degree. I'm, I give talks on cultural engagement all the time, and I almost inevitably say this at some point in, in those talks, that the church has to change from arguing that it's true because it's in the Bible to it's in the Bible because it's true. That's not the same thing. 
And one, you're saying the warrant for the truthfulness of this is the fact that it's in a divinely revealed book. Now, I happen to think that's true, but to a person who doesn't think the Bible is divinely revealed, that doesn't mean very much. But to a person with whom I'm engaged about life, if I say, I think this is in the Bible because it's true, it puts a burden on me to explain why that makes for effective living and why that's true. But I'm also making a point that the reason this is this is encased in a divine revelation is because there's something inherently beneficial in what it says that I can probe. So that kind uh, of cultural shift that we're engaged in puts a demand on Christians for a different kind of engagement that requires a little more thought than simply citing the support of, of the Bible for its basis. Yes, you know, I think you bring up a great point there, and I think a great example was here in Hawaii when they sought to legalize same-sex marriage here in Hawaii. Thousands of people that oppose same-sex marriage showed up to the Capitol, and when they had their chance to stand before the legislature, most of them said, I oppose it because the Bible says, or because I am a Christian, I do not support this. And I didn't think that was very effective when you're in front of legislatures who don't hold to the authority of the Bible. Uh, So when I was asked to write a brief two-page paper that people could read, I stated, you know, economic reasons, sociological reasons, historical, and then I finally said, that's why the Bible says. So I told them in that situation, we're going to have to argue to the Bible instead of from the Bible. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it. I mean, and I I do the same thing. I talk about, you know, the the great irony of the same-sex discussion is, and I say this carefully when I say it in a a larger public square, but one of the great ironies is, is that same-sex marriage is, in one sense, discriminatory. No matter how it's it's designed, it cuts one gender out of the community relationship that you establish in whatever family unit you have. And, And so it's inherently a contradiction to a value that our culture is supposed to hold to. And not only that, there is something about the male-female relationship that is depicted, obviously, early on in the book of Genesis, but still is important. There's some complementarity. There's some completeness in the way men and women are supposed to work together to make society function that is mirrored in marriage that is important. And you'll notice that that argument does not assume another argument that you often hear that also is a good argument, I think, and that is that uh, a same-sex marriage is not necessarily the most stable environment for a child to be raised in. And part of that has to do, also think, with the variety of genders that are supposed to be in play. But So there are other arguments that you can use that deal with the nature of human relationships and the way in which we relate to one another that can be brought into a discussion like that. Right. So I think, Daryl, you make the point that our founding fathers did not want religion out of the government, but government out of religion. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think think that the way I would say it is that they wanted people who believed in a, a moral 
basis and, and stability in order to make society run. You know, the reason they had designed checks and balances in our government is because the early fathers really believed that people, when they're given too much power, will abuse it and will take advantage of other people. So if you distribute the power across a system of checks and balances, you put a check on what we tend to do that can be destructive in our relationships. Uh, that comes right out of a belief about how deeply seated sin is in each one of us. And, and so what they wanted was a morally sensitive citizenry that contributed in its voting and in its reflection on the basis of a kind of moral reflection. Now, there are writers who write, written more recently, particularly poetry and that kind of thing, who talk about the modern person as being a hollow man or hollow person. That is, they don't have a deep enough reflective soul to to make good moral judgments, not just for their own lives, but in relationship to the relationships they have to others. T.S. Eliot is known for a very famous po poem called The Hollow Men, and that's what he was talking about. And he was writing, you know, in the earlier part of the last century. So this is something people have recognized as a weakness, and I actually think that when we view our politics and our relationships in terms of strictly utilitarian concerns, you know, what works or what we think works best for us in particular, and rather than thinking about our neighbor, rather than about thinking about the moral basis of our choices, what makes for human flourishing, what might work for the common good, then we have shown a, a lack of moral sensitivity in caring about our neighbor in the way that Scripture urges us to do. Yes, you know, Os Guinness talked about freedom's triangle, that in order to have a truly free nation, uh, it needs to be a virtuous and a good people who can govern themselves. And That's in order right. to have a universal, absolute law we all agree and abide by, it's rooted in God, the moral lawgiver. That's freedom's triangle that he said the founding fathers understood. I think that's exactly right. He also talked about a kind of freedom that can be suicidal if it doesn't have a sense of discipline and a sense of limits and boundaries about the way that freedom ought to work. And and so, you know, he's written about this in particular as well, and I think that that's one of the things that has kind of gotten us off track. We have an individualism that we exercise in our culture and a sense of entitlement and a sense of freedom that isn't operating with any kind of serious reflective moral restraint. And in that context, then, we actually end up damaging one another in our relationships. Yes, Os Guinness stated, and, and you stated in your book, the greatest enemy to freedom is freedom, in that when you have the wrong definition of what freedom is, well, what is the wrong definition and what is the definition that our founding fathers intended when we say freedom? Well, I think that what you're talking about here is the wrong definition of freedom is freedom in absolute terms in any and every way, where every person does what's right in their own eyes. You know, I like to use an illustration to talk about this. Imagine driving on a freeway that has no lanes and no rules. Everybody's out for themselves. That would be a pretty chaotic scene, and there are parts of the world where that happens. Oh yeah, and we there. and we and we know what that's like. The picture that we're dealing with is a kind of self-reflective use of rights that I have that also puts very much into play the impact of what I do on others. My line has been 
about the book. It's entitled, How Would Jesus Vote? Not, it's not, Who Would Jesus Vote For? I'm not telling you who to vote for in the book. I'm telling you, how would Jesus approach the issues? And one of the answers to the question, how would Jesus vote, is he would vote for your neighbor. He would ask you to think outside of your own self-interests, which is why most politics is done, and to ask yourself the question, what's better for most of us? What's better for my neighbor? How do I think in those kinds of terms as I deliberate politically? That moves outside my sense of liberty and freedom and my sense of my own entitlements, that kind of self-focus that often drives our politics and asks us to move beyond ourselves as we make uh, these deliberations. Yes, you're listening to our interview with Dr. Daryl Bach, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, a professor of New Testament and the director of the Center of Cultural Engagement there at Dallas Theological Seminary. We're talking about a great book he has authored, How Would Jesus Vote? Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.